I love this time of year in Oregon. The trees and flowers begin to bloom in a beautiful cornucopia of color. The skies are filled with big billowing clouds. And when you step outside, you don't know from one minute to the next whether you're going to get completely doused in rain or whether there's going to be nice, warm sunshine. I swear to you that in a five-minute walk yesterday, I got both rained on in a clear sky and sun in a cloudy sky, all just right out here when I went for a walk. I love this time of year, and part of the reason for that is because all of these things point to the established fact that summer is coming. How many of you love summer in Oregon? Yeah. Summer in Oregon is like heaven on earth. I recently heard a radio advertisement that said, Portland, come for the summer and stay for the other three seasons. Summer in Oregon is how we hook non-Oregonians on staying here. Most of us that have lived in Oregon wish we could hide summer from a lot of the non-Oregonians. One of my friends from California who moved here likes to joke that it was a good thing that he was hired for the summer because if he hadn't been, he probably would have gone home pretty quick when he saw all the rain. We revel in this time of year because of the hope of what is ahead, of all that it brings us, of the comfort, of the joy, of the fun, of the rest, of the rejoicing in the summer that we have ahead. Over the last few weeks, we've been in the midst of Deuteronomy looking at the festal uh, calendar that they have that the Jews used to look backward and to look forward, to commemorate what the Lord had done and to look forward to what the Lord will do. And they used it also to mark the transition of the year, much like what we have in the seasons here in Oregon that mark so heavily the transition of the year. We've been looking in particular to the three feasts on which the people of Israel, at the bare minimum, the men from each family, would go and flock to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship Yahweh. You guys might remember these if you've been with us. The first is the Feast of Passover. And there they were celebrating the fact that their God spared them from the final plague which caused Pharaoh to set them free from the land of Egypt. They celebrated the Feast of Weeks, which had a number of parts to it. They were celebrating that redemption from Egypt as well as the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the provision that God provided through it. And lastly, what we'll look at today is the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. This was where they celebrated the fullness of the harvest. They celebrated this in the fall when the harvest had fully come in, when all the fruit-bearing trees and all the final pieces of their harvest had come in. And they rejoiced together in the goodness of God in the midst of God's promised land as they recalled all that they had been through to get there, his taking them through the wilderness wanderings, symbolized by the tents that they celebrated in. Now, tucked within this festal system, and specifically, these three primary feasts is a truth that I believe speaks to us of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope of a final resurrection to eternal life. And so we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, Savior, and King this morning. And we do that by starting in Deuteronomy, and it will help us to ponder what I'm calling this morning the established hope of the resurrection. The established hope of the resurrection. And I want us to think through not only what the resurrection was, and what it did for us, but also what it points us towards in the future. So look with me, if you will, at Deuteronomy 16, but we're going to start a few verses earlier than verse 13 there. We're going to start in verse 9. This is the Feast of Weeks that we covered last time. You shall count seven weeks, begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. 
What we see here in this feast that is initiated by the giving of the first fruits is our first point. If you're taking down notes, you can write this down. The first fruits always pointed the way to the fullness of the harvest. The first fruits always pointed the way to the fullness of the harvest. The Feast of Weeks began with this ingathering that occurred when they first put the sickle to the standing grain. This was the moment that they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest to come. This was literally the first thing they plucked out of their garden, so to speak. The long, weary winter was over and spring had finally come. The crops were being reaped. First, there was the barley harvest from which they were taking this first fruits. And with this harvest, as we looked at last week, the people would give the priests their first wheat and they would bundle it into a sheaf and he would take it and he would lift it before the Lord. He would wave it to see uh, if the Lord would accept the offering. This first harvest was in March or April, around the same time we are. Um, and this is when they would celebrate that God had provided for them. Fifty days later, they would bring in the rest of the grain at the uh, Feast of Weeks. And this harvest would occur in May or June. And then they would begin to look forward, harvesting crops, knowing that the day would come when all the produce had come in. The figs, the olives, the grapes all their crops. And this feast happened there in verse 13. This is where it's commanded. Look at verse 13 of chapter 16. You shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. Notice that it's now grapes as well. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. On that day that the crops had come in, sometime around September, the people were called to again gather so that they might rejoice together in God's provision of redemption from from Egypt, and they would commemorate this time by spending seven days in tents otherwise known as booths or or tabernacles, remembering God's faithfulness in getting them through the wilderness to bring them to the promised land in which they now rejoiced at God's amazing provision. And they would celebrate as they did in the other feasts. The covenant people of God would rejoice together in a great party of good feasting, much like some of you are going to do later today, caring for the oppressed people in their midst and loving one another as they took joy in the work that occurred during the harvest. As an Israelite, imagine what it must have been like when that first sign of provision came. Remember that they didn't have grocery stores. They didn't have Amazon. They couldn't just order food. This was literally what was going to be survival for them. The food that had lasted them the winter was finishing off, and what they had in their hands was the sign that life was coming. Think about it. If that first fruit had not come, what would happen? They would die. Death was the only other option. So you can imagine them taking this first fruit, taking this life-giving wheat, raising it before the Lord and proclaiming, God has provided for us. And they knew that by that first fruit of the wheat, they would not die. But more importantly, they knew that that first produce pointed them to the hope of the larger harvest. The final harvest after which they could rest and rejoice and be at peace for a time. 
It is the same reason we rejoice when we see the rain clouds and see the flowers and trees bloom. We know that summer is coming and we rejoice in the provision of rest it will grant us. Well, the Apostle Paul, he looked at these fest, this festal calendar, these feasts, and he saw in them something that he later applied to speak to Jesus Christ. As we've noted the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this well-known idea of first fruits to speak of Christ as the beginning of the harvest of God's fruitful people. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 15.20. Turn there with me in your Bibles if you would. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15.20. Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What we see here is our second point that's similar to the first but slightly different. The first fruits of the resurrection point the way to the hope of the final harvest. The first fruits of the resurrection point the way to the hope of the final harvest. We gather this morning to celebrate the first fruits of the resurrection. On that day, roughly 2,000 years ago, the disciples of Jesus watched as their rabbi, as their master and Lord, as their friend, was crucified and buried. Three days passed as they sat in silent confusion and mourning. On the first day of the week, Sunday at early dawn, as Lauren read to us a moment ago, some of Jesus' disciples were going to the tomb to put spices on his body so that the decay and the smell of his body decomposing was not overwhelming. But when they arrived at the tomb, they found that the stone that blocked the entrance, the stone that had been sealed by the Romans and the Pharisees, It had been rolled away, and when they went in, they did not find the body of Jesus. As they tried to gather themselves, they were asked an amazing question by two angelic messengers. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He, Jesus, he is not here. He is risen. This rising that they discussed was a rising from the dead, a resurrection to eternal life that had been promised by the prophets. It was the beginning of what the prophet Daniel had said would happen one day. This is from Daniel 12.2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall be awakened, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, there will be a resurrection in which those that belong to God will be raised to everlasting life and those that do not to everlasting torment. Now, when the women ran back to the apostles, they did not believe it. And so Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself and says this, 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter went home marveling because his Lord, rabbi, and friend had just risen from the dead. He had resurrected. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is a promise. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The story of mankind is that from the beginnings of our history, we have decided that rather than submit to a loving creator, that we would decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. Just as our first father, Adam, the representative of mankind, sinned against God by giving in to his own authority rather than seeking God's authority, you and I were likewise born in rebellion against God. If God had simply left us to ourselves at that point, we would have received the eventual outcome of our separation from the source of life. We would receive eternal death and torment being separated from the God that created us. But God the Father loved the world he created so so very much. He sent his only son into our world, born of a woman to experience life as we know it, to go through our hurts and our pains, to go through the sorrows and become well acquainted with them. And in the midst of that life, Jesus simultaneously represented the Father, reflected the Father through a lifestyle of righteousness and justice, healing, caring for the sick, caring for the oppressed. And at the same time, he walked in perfect obedience to the Father, making himself into that perfect spotless lamb that would become the Passover sacrifice for you and I. And at the appropriate time, Jesus was given up to death on the cross, seemingly overcome by the system of rebellion that began with the first of mankind, dying in my place and in yours, becoming the sin that we have done against a holy and righteous and loving God. As that atoning sacrifice, his blood cleanses us from our sin if we choose to claim him as our sacrifice, if we choose to bow our knee to him as king. If we do, we then also step into the fullness of this life and what submission to Christ as king brings. Now enthroned as king over the victorious kingdom, that has conquered sin, death, and hell, and conquered the very kingdom of darkness that enslaves us. Forty days after this resurrection, Jesus ascended into heaven and now sits in authority over his people, over us, the church, and we wait for the day that he will return fully, reign as king over a redeemed and resurrected world. You see, dear brothers and sisters, guests, there will come a resurrection of the dead. And for those that are in Christ, it will be a glorious resurrection. Amen? Often we as Christians caricature the end of all things by going along with this cartoon picture of heaven in the clouds with golden harps and golden gates and such. But that's for Bugs Bunny. That's not the Bible. That's not the picture that the Bible paints. The Bible states clearly that Jesus Christ will return in the fullness of time. And when he returns, he will rule and reign on this earth. 
As part of that kingdom, he will bring forth a resurrection of the dead and judge each one of us that are his to eternal life. And those who are not his, he will allow them to fulfill the natural end of a life turned against him and in rebellion toward him. He will allow them to go off into a place far away from him, created for those angels who rebelled against him, a place of loneliness and pain, absent of love, absent of light, absent of life. The first fruits of Jesus is like that first sheaf that was raised before the Lord by the priest. By Jesus' resurrection, we have proof that God the Father was pleased with Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. His life in place for yours and mine. The righteous life in place of our unrighteous lives. Because of that resurrection, Jesus has begun the fullness of the harvest, bringing the message that he reigns to the ends of the earth through his people, the church, through you and I. We can begin to look forward to the day when we are fully in his presence, submitted completely to his reign as king, stepping into the eternal life he has for us in peace and in righteousness, a life where death and sin and pain and disease, sadness, can no longer touch us. Paul so eloquently describes what this will look like there in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42. Look there with me. He says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Amen. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born... Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
One day we will step into the ultimate rejoicing and celebration of the fullness of God's harvest. Until then, we look forward with joy-filled anticipation, like a child who can't wait to open his presents on Christmas morning. Seeing the inaugurated kingdom here amongst us, us as his people and across the world. Last night, I was blessed because my friend Marcel from West Africa in the middle of their Passover service, he decided to FaceTime me in. At first, I started talking to him, and then I realized, oh, no, he just wants me to take part. And so I was literally dancing around in my office for about two minutes while he showed me all the people in his church dancing around. I probably looked really weird. They looked totally natural. It was awesome. And I thought to myself, how amazing will it be when we can stand with our Burkina Bay brothers and sisters and all our sisters across the world and rejoice in one voice before our God who has made us his people. Joy-filled anticipation. We gather to rejoice that death and sin and hell has no sting in the life of the Christian. It may hurt for a moment, but it is overwhelmed by the victory of Jesus Christ. He was victory, victorious over the kingdom of darkness through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so this morning, I want to finish with this last point before we worship together. Every one of us must decide what we do with the resurrection of Jesus. Every one of us must decide what we do with the resurrection of Jesus. For those of you here today that may be visiting or may not even have an interest in religion or Jesus or Easter. Maybe you were brought here or dragged here by someone. We welcome you anyway, and we're glad you're here. But the question remains for even you that what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? Roughly 2,000 years ago, a know-nothing country carpenter and rabbi caused a huge chaotic movement in the midst of the Israelite people. His existence is one of the most established facts in all of history. All the attempts to make him into a myth or discredit his existence have been easily dismissed over the centuries. His death and resurrection are likewise two of the most easily established facts of history. Paul himself, a man that was converted from complete hatred towards the Christians to become one himself, points out just how established this is and gives proof as to why Jesus did resurrect. He does so in 1 Corinthians 15 at the beginning. Why don't you just look there with me? You're probably already still in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verse 1. Paul says to the church there in Corinth, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This Jesus was the one who many saw crucified with a nail through his feet, nails through his hands, drenched in his own blood from being abused 
and tortured. This Jesus was pierced with a spear and had plasma and water pour forth from his wound, which is a sign of a burst heart that no one can survive. This Jesus was killed and entombed. And so great was his influence on the uprising of the people that the Romans and the religious leaders placed guards and had the tomb sealed so that no stories could break out and build up the insurrection. And yet, even with all that, three days later, just as Scripture had prophesied, Jesus came forth and appeared not to one, not to five, not to ten, but to over 500 people. And as if to put an exclamation mark on it, he even calls in the fact that one of those people was James, Jesus' brother. Now you might laugh at that and think, well, he was just one of the people, but guys, I have twin sons. And I guarantee you, if one of them went to the other after resurrecting from death and said, hey, by the way, I'm your king, you need to bow the knee to me, I think they'd probably punch each other in the throat. The brother would not bow the knee to the other brother. It would not happen. Now, luckily, my children are nicer than that, but the reality is, is it wouldn't happen. And as a last exclamation, he says, and even me, the one who persecuted the church of God. There is no possible way that anything other than Jesus resurrecting from the grave happened that day. Jesus proved that he was living. Many of these 500 people went to their death willingly proclaiming his resurrection. If you do not know Jesus this morning, you must ask yourself, what do I do with his resurrection? And I would submit to you that because his resurrection was established, then likewise the fullness of the resurrection to come is just as established. In that resurrection, eternal life only comes through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved except that of Jesus Christ. So please don't wait any longer. Give your life over to Jesus. Let today be the day where you repent from your sin and declare your allegiance to Christ. And if you would like to step into relationship with Christ, I would love Love, love to talk with you after the service. And we would love to welcome you into fellowship at this church or point you in the direction of another great local church. We would love to have you be part of the kingdom of Christ. For those of you who know Christ already this morning, which I would guess is most of you in this room since you go to this church, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who have given your allegiance to Christ by faith in his death and resurrection, those of you who have become part of his people and live life in Christ, this morning I know what you have decided to do with the resurrection. You've decided to rejoice in him and to live life for him, completely submitting your lives to him. You have decided to join him in his death as you give your life to him every day. You've decided to rejoice and hope in the knowledge that he is returning that he will resurrect his people to eternal life. And in so doing, you have chosen to take part in the resurrection. So because of this, I have two applications for you today. First, take today to rejoice with friends and family in the goodness of God that he has provided a way for us to no longer be enslaved to the seemingly invincible terror of sin, death, and hell. 
Rejoice and celebrate that the fullness of the harvest is coming because Jesus was the first fruits. And dear church, the resurrection tells us that the Father was pleased with that offering. But second, once you've taken time to rejoice, remember that the harvest is not yet over. Remember that God is using his church to step out into the harvest field to plant the seeds of the gospel and reap the increase of men and women for the glory of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 9, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Dear church, let's rejoice as we continue to go into Salem and Kaiser and all the surrounding cities and to the ends of the earth that Jesus has made us disciple-makers by welcoming people into our midst and teaching them and equipping them and sending them back out into the community to make much of his name. This morning, let's celebrate Jesus and find our strength to serve him through the established hope of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. He is risen.